What's the most scared you have ever been? I'm not talking about being on a crazy roller coaster ride or watching a scary movie. What we're talking about on this episode is the kind of fear that just grips you and controls you, and it won't let you think about anything else. I asked some of the listeners of this podcast that very question, what's the most scared you've ever been, in our private Facebook group. And at the end of this episode, you'll be able to hear some of their answers, and there's quite a variety. Turns out being scared can show up in our lives in a lot of different ways. And our guest today, Kira, has experienced that kind of gut-wrenching fear. She was on a downtown street alone. It was dark because it was 3.30 a.m. She was walking to work and thought everything was okay. But she suddenly realized she was not alone. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What city did you live in when this happened? I lived in Portland. Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. Now, I know you grew up somewhere further south of that, like Arizona or something, right? How did you end up in Portland? I had a friend that had lived here that I met in Arizona that had had already moved up to Oregon near Portland in one of the suburbs. And uh, when I told her that that this guy and I had broken up and I was like, I got to, you know, I'm going to have to move anyway. She was like, come up here, you know, live with us, stay with us, get on your feet. Uh, So I did. I, I packed up my car and sold a lot of stuff and and I sold everything that was that w- wouldn't fit in my car. <laughs> and my ex, he helped me tremendously, actually. Yeah, he was a great help and kind of uh, selling things and getting some money s- stocked away and so that I wouldn't be, you know, totally broke when I went out there. And, and I packed up like a month later and, and I drove up to Oregon uh, and moved in with my, with my friend and her, her husband. 
and just kind of started a new adventure. I was on my own for the, I don't want to say on my own. I always lived alone. I had moved, I had moved out pretty young, like when I was 18. So being on my own wasn't a new thing, but I was really on my own. I didn't have access to the same people. Um, Right. You're in a, you're in a whole new city and you got to find a job. At least you have a place to stay. That's a good, good place, but a good thing. Yeah. They were so kind. Uh, they were so kind to me to let me stay there. Yeah. Finding a job is difficult. Uh, so I found the very, the, I mean, I applied for everything and the only thing I could find was like a little supervisor job at a, at a pizza place. Is that where you were working when this happened? That is not where I was working. No, I moved on from that. I had, moved on to something a little bit more corporate, but where, where I was working when this happened was uh, more of like a, it was like a customer service and call it a call center for lack of a better way to describe it. Sure. Call center. And it was in downtown Portland. So, and you had to be to work really early. Yeah. So I had just moved not, yeah, I guess we had just moved. Um, Marcus and I had just moved out here uh, closer, closer to downtown and I had started this job, so I just barely had started it. And initially, my schedule was, I didn't start till 7. So I was walking uh, a little bit later. And then when I started my permanent schedule, it started at 5 a.m. Uh, so I would have to leave the house a little bit earlier by you know, 3.45 or, or 4 o'clock. And that's because you walked to work. Yeah, I walked. I walked to work. I had started walking uh, when, I, when I moved here. Honestly, just kind of that started as wandering because I was uh, trying to find myself. I was in this weird place and, and kind of starting all over with my life. And I started walking quite a bit and I, and I fell in love with it. And so I had been walking to work for years uh, by the time, by the time this happened. Now you mentioned the name Marcus. Can you tell us who that is? Yeah. Marcus is my, (laughs) Marcus is, um, is everything. He's my person, my partner. I guess you you could call him. I met I met him. Gosh, I don't even know how long it's been. Four years, four years ago. And yeah, he's my best friend. We live together. We share life together. He's really like he's my teammate. Yeah, teammate is a and it is an excellent word for who Marcus is. Okay, well, tell us. Uh, so your your daily schedule essentially is leaving your house at three thirty or so. And walking for an hour, hour and a half to get to work. Yeah, ish. I yeah. I mean, I left a little bit early that day, but for the most part, I was leaving before four a.m. to get to work every day. And I had been doing that only only about two weeks at that point. So obviously, it's still dark then. Very dark. Yeah. So can you just take us through what happened on that day? Yeah. So I woke up, and I woke up. Pretty early that morning, I was out the door before 3.30, really, because this happened at 3.30. So I left around 3 a.m. And I was looking for a scooter. They have these rental scooters downtown. I don't know if they have them where you are, but you use it's like an app on your phone and you just put money on it and you can scan a little barcode on the scooter and it'll start up for you. And I had been doing that for a couple of days and it was fun, but also it made me feel a little bit safer just because it got me where I wanted to go quicker. <laughs> so I was looking for one of those and and there wasn't one along my normal route that I would take. So I had to take an, a route that I had taken previously that I didn't care for as much because I had run into a couple of people that 
made me nervous. They made me uncomfortable and it, it felt scary to me. So I had started taking uh, a different route and purchased some pepper spray and some and a stun gun and and downloaded a safety app called Noonlight. But on this day, I wanted that scooter and it was the only one, the closest one to me was through that other area. So I thought, well, I've got the the stun gun and I had the Noonlight app. So I thought it would be fine because that's, that's how we live our lives because <laughs> it always is fine. So I left for work and it was, uh, I remember it being a particularly beautiful day. I had a hoodie on when I left and I had taken it off and just wore a t-shirt and um, some little jogging pants and uh, tied that that sweatshirt around my waist and took off and um can you explain before you take off how does the noonlight app work so it's just a free app and you open it up it's really simple you create a passcode that's four digits and when you want to use it you open it there's a sensor right in the middle of the screen and you put your finger on that sensor and when you take your finger off of the sensor you've got 10 seconds to enter the code that you created. Uh, and if you don't enter that code within 10 seconds, then Noonlight will try to call you. And if they talk to you and verify everything's fine, then great. And if they talk to you and everything's not fine, or if you don't answer, then they use your GPS coordinates to dispatch police to you. So the whole time you're walking, you've got your finger or thumb on this sensor on your phone. Yeah, and that it's funny because... More recently, people have been, I've heard people say, yeah, it's, I, I can't imagine carrying my phone for that long of a walk, which I, I hear you. Uh, it worked for me because I carried my phone anyway. And so you, you're carrying your phone, but and you can also, even though that app is running and active on your phone, you can still listen to music or podcasts or whatever while you're walking. Sure. Yep. I was listening to a true crime podcast if you want to change it or pause it or something, you've, you've got to take your finger off the sensor, enter your code and go to your podcast thing. So you're sort of, I guess, unprotected during that time. But yeah, you can, you can still hear everything. It doesn't make noise. It doesn't interfere with anything. Okay. So that's good. It sounds like an, an interesting app. We'll have to talk a little more about that. Yeah, it's fantastic. So I was walking, I was listening to that podcast. I had earbuds in and really just enjoying enjoying the the morning i really liked that time of day it was nice and quiet and generally i didn't encounter very many people until i got to a little bit further into downtown and i had about a mile or mile and a half before i actually got to downtown so i was just i was just enjoying the walk and enjoying the podcast and i got about a mile in and there's a an under armor like a corporate building that has a running track attached to it that is for public use and it's it's always open. And otherwise, it's pretty dark. Uh, there's not even a sidewalk on the other side. It's super dark over there. So I walked over to the sidewalk uh, in front of Under Armour and I happened to glance over to the track and I saw a gentleman jo jogging ish we'll call it he was making kind of a, a jogging motion and i really only noticed him because he was jogging weird and he was wearing weird shoes for jogging but also it's portland and and there's a lot of there's a lot of weird stuff that you see and it was the 5th of july and it was three you know three thirty ish in the morning at the at this point so people were still partying and 
still fireworks and stuff going off in the distance. So I didn't really pay him any mind. There was an ambulance parked at Under Armour. It was dark waiting for a call and it was just quiet. So just past the Under Armour, there's this overpass, a freeway overpass that marks sort of the separation from the regular, whatever you want to call it, the regular city street to the downtown area. It's less residential in it, and it marks the downtown. Just beyond that overpass, there was a construction area at that time, and then you're right in downtown after that. So when you get to the overpass on the left, there's current currently there's a homeless camp back there, but there used to sort of be in and out. People would sleep back there sometimes, or people would hang out back there, but it's really dark. There's a tree, and it's it's so black back there, and that's the only part of my walk that I'll... <laughs> That intimidated me. So I would walk in the middle of the road because it was 3.30 in the morning and nobody was driving on the road. So I did. I moved into the middle of the street and I'm on the overpass and I get about to the middle of it and I just did a casual glance over my left shoulder I always do that. I always look around and there's never anybody there, but there was that guy from the track, from the Under Armour track, and he was jogging on the sidewalk. And so I I did kind of a double take and it happened really fast. But when I first saw him, he might've been 10 or 15 feet behind me. It's sort of hard to tell. And then I, I turned again and he was coming up to me already. And I wasn't scared. I was irritated maybe, or, or sort of like, ugh, all right. Cause people, people come up to you all the time downtown. So I took my earbud out and I, and I said, what? Cause he was saying something. And, and he said, he said, show me your tits and I won't hurt you. And I said, um, I, I just, I, I, at first I didn't say anything. I just kind of went, ah, um, and I remember immediately looking to my to my left where we were standing, and if I could have if i if I could have I would have taken off, but he was sort of it would have it was behind me and and I couldn't go, so my immediate thought was to run, but i I just felt like I couldn't do I was just there I was trying to figure out what was was going on. So he says, I, I, I just stuttered and, and just was going, uh, and he said, um, just, just take them out, take them out, uh, take them out and, and I won't hurt you or I won't kill you or, and I, I realized he, he, he was standing in a weird position. He was so close to me, uh, and I didn't feel like I could really do anything. And I was in my assessment of that. I realized he had, he was holding his hand holding his hand up weird and I had my hands up because I had my phone and and the, the uh, stun gun in either hand so my hands were full and they were up and I realized his hand was up and he had uh he had a knife and he was holding it just right in front of my my chest sort of and at my sternum and in, in front of my heart and that was it that was that was the that was all that was between us was just the length of of the knife that he was holding and I just realize that I had to, I'm, I don't know how to explain it, but my heart sank. Like my heart just sank. And, and your brain is, there's two things happening. It's like, 
your body uh, and your feelings are, are taking over and kind of shutting shutting you down, making you slow and you can't move and you're panicked and your brain is doing this other thing where it kind of gets to work and just says, I, I got this uh, and it's assessing and it's thinking. So there's one part of me that is, I just wanted to cry. I just wanted to cry and have a tantrum because it was too much. It was too much and I didn't know I didn't know what to do. I couldn't get out of it. This guy was going to touch me or, and, and he was going to kill me. And then the other part of me was thinking, look at his face, you know, look at his eyes and look at the knife and, and look around and can you run? And so there's a lot of stuff happening and, and you can just hear your heart pounding and that's it. That's all you can hear. There's nothing, nothing else, nothing else exists in those moments. It's just, you're just there with the person. So I had to, I had to do what he said. So I, I had a backpack on and I didn't want to take it off. And I had the phone in my hand and I had taken my finger off of that moonlight sensor when this first started. So I could feel my phone buzzing first for the code and then for, for their calls, but I couldn't, I couldn't answer obviously. So I just kept not answering and I, moved my phone into the the hand with the stun gun and I used my hand to pull my other hand to pull my right breast out of the top of my shirt and as I did that he was staring at he was just staring at me and had that knife right right there and he kind of licked his licked his lips and he made this sound um, I don't know how to, I've never been able to, I, I don't think I could replicate it. It was sort of a groan and he like smacked his lips and, and he said, uh, let me touch, let me touch them and, and I won't hurt you or, or I won't kill you. And I said, please don't, <laughs> please don't. And he said, just let me, just let me touch them. Let me touch them and, and I won't hurt you. And I, I mean, every part of your body is revolting and saying, you cannot allow this to happen. And your brain is saying, just hang in there a little bit longer. You know, like it's not the right time. Your brain just knows what to do. It just wasn't the right time to run. I had the stun gun, but I, but I thought I wasn't thinking about it too much. I, I briefly thought about using it, but he, he could easily have stabbed me. Um, and which I was sure he was going to do. I was, I was certain, I was 100% certain that he intended to kill me. He told me that if I did what he wanted, that he wouldn't do anything to me. But then he just kept asking me for things. And so at some point I'm going to say no. And I'm going to say no. As su- the minute the minute that he put his hands on me, the minute that he reached out and touched my breast, that was it. I knew that was it. There's... I. I've heard survival stories so many times and I've heard, I've heard a lot of things that I always thought that can't possibly be true. And it's this kind of a weird graphic thing to say, but I hear a lot of people say, I knew I'd rather be killed than, than be raped. And, and I don't know how to explain it, but in those moments, I just thought, well, I mean, I don't want to let him, I don't want to let him rape me and I don't want to let him kill me, but I would rather make him chase me down and fight me for, whatever he want. I just cannot, I cannot, I cannot stand here and allow it. But I couldn't, I couldn't go anywhere at that point. I still, he was touched. He had his hands on my body uh, and he had a knife in his other hand. 
right next to that. So I wanted him to finish doing that. And he, he was talking to me. He was being really vile and saying things that I probably won't repeat, but uh, he said like, those are really nice. That's really nice. And he said something like, I seen you a while, a while back or, or I, I've seen you before. And I could, I really didn't know if he meant distance or time. It was just sort of a passing, a fleeting thought. It was in the middle of everything that he was saying about my body and how much he liked that and how nice that was for him. And so to be honest with you, I struggle to remember if he stopped touching me or if I, if I just eventually said just as nicely and politely as I could, may I please go now? And he kind of straightened up. And at that point, he didn't have his hand on me anymore, but he said, no, stay there or stand there. Uh, and I didn't, it was at that point that I just took off. I just left. I just went. I had a backpack on and I I remember thinking through before I before I ran like maybe if he chases me I was certain he was going to chase me. There was still maybe some disbelief like maybe if I run he won't he won't chase me but I I I felt certain that if I ran I wasn't going to be fast enough so like if he stabs at me he'll get my backpack right it was the best chance I had so I just took off. What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, CookUnity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And I briefly glanced back when I was running. I mean, I just, just was running so fast. And I looked back and he was just standing there with his hand up with that knife in it, just staring at me. And then... He might, I might've seen him take a 
a step in the other direction or maybe I'm just, I just know now that he went the other direction. So, but he was just standing there when I looked at him and I kept running, I kept running and I was trying to answer the phone. I was panicked and I was out of breath and, and just desperately trying to answer that phone. I think I, 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 I feel like the call ended and then they had to call back again and I was still swiping, 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 trying to answer it. Hello? Good morning. This is Noonlight calling. We received please an alarm help from me, Please Bay. help me. Please help me. What's wrong? Somebody pulled a knife on me and asked to see my kids. And then okay. you have to touch them. And I'm running and I don't know where it is. Okay. Can you get to someplace where there's someone at? I'm going to no, go ahead. No, nobody out here. I'm in downtown Portland. There's nobody out here. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and send the police. I have your location. Are you still tracking me? Yes. Please stay with me. <laughs> Okay, hold on one moment. I have someone dispatch. Give me just a moment. I can't anymore. I need I you to dispatch on this moonlight. Someone pulled a someone pulled a knife on her. She's running right now. She's on the phone with me. I see your life. Try to get to the Chevron. Can you see the Chevron? Get to the Chevron. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. I just an ambulance passing, but there's nobody. There's nobody. There's nobody. <laughs> I don't know where this guy is. Okay. Take some, take some deep breaths. Are, did you stop running or are you still running? I can't run anymore. I can't. Okay, so you buy the Chevron? I, I buy the Chevron, but I'm scared of just standing here. Okay. I have, it's okay. My, co- my co-worker's on the phone with the police right now. She's by the Chevron. Someone pulled a knife on her and they're chasing her. He touched me. He fucking touched me. I can't believe I have a stun gun in my hand and I couldn't do anything. I was just looking paralyzed. I'm such a coward. Okay, help is on the way right now. Take a couple of deep breaths. now okay they're, they're going to be there shortly the police i'm going to stay with you till they arrive okay do you have a description of the gentleman he's white he has white. gray hair within a ponytail he was wearing gray clothes. hair and, and a, a ponytail. black jacket a hoodie jacket zipper jacket black hoodie he was probably five eight five he eight might weigh 150 to 170. 150 to 170. Uh, he had light, lighter eyes, I think. Um, and he where, was, where did it originally happen at? Where were you attacked? It happened on um, Barber. And I don't know the name of the road, but it's by Stukey's. It's by a hotel. By Stukey's, um, the right hotel? By the, by the um, freeway overpass. By the overpass. Right um, she ran all the uh, way to the Chevron. Uh,
to be there any minute. Sorry, it's I'm okay. Sorry. Don't apologize. Don't apologize. <laughs> I never thought I'd prepare for that every day because it's so scary. And then when it happened, I couldn't do anything. I just couldn't do anything. And he touched me. <laughs> I can't believe that happened. <laughs> Take a couple of deep breaths. <laughs> Why aren't they here yet? They'll be there shortly. A sheriff just passed me. A sheriff just passed me. Oh my god. This is taking forever. I don't know. That guy told me he noticed me before he saw me, and he was following me for a while. I don't oh, even wow. know where he's at right now. I can't believe it. I can't fucking believe it. I just, I just want to get off the street so bad. I know. And there's nowhere to go. Nothing is open. There's no people except crazy people. I can't. I'm in a fucking nightmare right now. I'm so sorry. This is not your fault. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. I understand. I'm all alone. I'm all alone. I, I can't. No, 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 no. I'm so scared. I am so fucking scared. I'm still here. Just gotta take some deep breaths. He had a knife. He had a fucking knife. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. There's nobody around. Oh, Jesus. Hello? Miss Kira? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. We just got disconnected. Yeah. Is is the did the police arrive? There. Can you hear me? Are you there? Are yes. you there? Yes. Okay. Well, there's nobody here yet. It's okay. been almost ten minutes. Somebody could kill me right now. Uh, where are the police? <laughs> There are just cars. I am not far enough away from Earth where this happened, and that guy could be watching me. I I don't want to see you on this I'm so scared. I'm just out in the open, and there's nowhere to hide. <laughs> there's somebody walking towards me. And I'm scared. I'm so scared. I have to I have to go away from here. I'm okay, crossing what? the street. Okay. I can't. There's somebody coming towards me. Where are the police dogs? Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? Let me see if I can get you on the phone with the police. Um, so that way you can tell them where you're at because we did have them going to the Chevron, but I see that you're. Well, I'll go back. I'll go back. No, no, no. I know, I know, I know, I know. I just don't want them to not be able to find you. I don't either. I don't either. I'll just stand right here for a minute. 
I'm just I'm just across the street from the Chevron. And what what are you What are you wearing? What is the description of you? I'm wearing black pants and um, gray sneakers and a, a dark blue shirt with pink American Eagle and a, a lavender sweatshop a sweatshirt tied around my waist and then a black backpack. And I have a stun gun in my hand, um, but I'll put it away. I see a police officer, and I'm across from the Chevron. Okay. I'll go. go I'll go across. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure you're there and safe before I hang up. I'm safe. I'm with the police. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. And she stayed with me. She was she was my lifeline. She was everything. And in that moment, I just wanted to get home to Marcus. He's, I thought about him the, the whole time. And all I want to do is just get back to him. But I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to be on the phone with the Noonlight. And she was really the next, the next best thing. She, I knew she knew where I was. I knew that she was telling somebody what was going on. And that if this guy managed to come back in that, what, 13 minutes it took for somebody to get there that that she would be able to tell them where I was last. Somebody knew. Somebody knew and that was comforting and she was on the phone with me and I could actively scream and sob in, in her ear and, and be hysterical and and I'm really glad that I had that. She was very kind to me. They're fantastic. They're so fantastic. That, that had to be so reassuring knowing, I mean, just having a voice on the other end of the phone to talk to but knowing that she had her computer there and she could see exactly where you are. Yeah, she'll like, no matter what, no matter what, somebody's coming. I don't know when, it just felt like, it felt like a lifetime. I cannot imagine having to have done that alone. Trying to run and dial 911, I don't think would have been, I couldn't even get my my phone unlocked. Like, Somebody, it was in somebody else's hands and she was capable and she was confident and she was reassuring. So that's exactly what I needed. I, w- I don't want to have the perspective of having done that without Moonlight. I'm glad. I'm glad that I only have the perspective that I do. So I had been sort of crouched down across the street from the Chevron. I moved over there because I had seen somebody that scared me. And anyway, so they pulled up by the Chevron. And I almost didn't see them because their cars were so dark and it was so dark out there. And I, I finally saw them and I, I ran screaming, you know, across to them. And there were two, two cars, two officers. One of them got the description of the guy from me and got in his car and took off and went and looked for him. And then the other officer stayed with me and he was fine. I feel like saying he was fine might be giving him a little too much credit. It was clear to me that he either had had a rough night or had a had a rough job uh, and that he thought something else was going on. Once I convinced him nothing else was going on, I wasn't selling drugs or <laughs> I don't know whatever he thought I was doing he didn't he didn't make any accusations I should make that clear it was just a lot of like how do you know this guy how do you know this guy where did you meet this guy where do you live again where are you going why are you going there but he he got the information we we took the report I asked him if he would take me home 
He asked me where I lived. I, I told him we were about a mile and a half from my house by that time. And he's, I don't remember his exact words. It was something along the lines of, I don't, I don't usually patrol that far south. That's outside of my patrol area. And then he just kind of looked at me and I was like, okay, well, I mean, I guess I could call a lift. And I honestly, thinking back, I really wish I would have been in a better place to say, man, are you kidding? You can't. You cannot be serious right now. Like this is the, somebody just tried to kill me. Looking back, it was, I mean, I don't know what it means, but it's certainly an example of what the job, what that kind of a job does, right? Like the stress. To make you kind of cynical. I mean, yeah. Um, to treat, to treat humans, victims that way. I, I feel like that must be, a, there's a lot of stuff going on there. A lot to unpack, but different podcasts. He he agreed to drive me home and told me that if I was going to be, when we were in the car driving driving back to my place, he said if I was going to be walking around in downtown Portland, I should carry a gun and it's not safe to be doing that. And he did get me home and uh, he did shake my hand and, and told me he was glad I was safe. And uh, he put his spotlight up on my front door and he said he would wait until I was inside and, and he sure did that and that was great. Yeah, so I went inside and I locked the door and I just sat down. It was really dark. It was really quiet. And Marcus was asleep. Like I just didn't even know what to do. I didn't even know how to tell him. And I had, I was immediately in problem solving mode because that's what I do. And I was thinking like, well, minimizing, right? Like, well, I'm not hurt. I don't have to go to the hospital. So this is just, this can wait until he wakes up for work. I don't want to wake him up. I, I really didn't know what to do. I mean, you're not really thinking straight. Your body's in such shock. It's such a, it's difficult even, I'll be honest, it's difficult sometimes to even recall how scary it was because my, I think your body just develops a physical barrier to wanting to it just revolts trying to go back to that place. I, re I remember so vividly sitting on that floor and being uncomfortable. I didn't take my backpack off and I was uncomfortable and I kept thinking, get up. You can do it. You're home now. You're safe. Get up and, and, and take your shoes off. And I just couldn't, I just didn't know what to do. And so I, I don't know how long it was, but I finally got up and, took my backpack off and I went into Marcus's room and I was going to go in and softly and try to wake him up softly and just say, Hey, this thing happened and I, I really need a hug. And instead I, he woke up and I immediately started crying and I was like, this guy attacked me. And I was, it was horrifying. He was horrified. I woke him up to that news and I feel really bad for doing that. God, Oh God, I feel so bad. But he got up immediately and you know pulled me into his arms and and he and we cried together. And I don't think either one of us really knew what to do. And I, when I don't think I can stress that enough, there was just so much not knowing what to do, and it it looks like a lot of puttering and pacing, right? Like it's just sort of walking in the bedroom and sitting on the bed and then getting up and walking into the kitchen and and then going into the living room and sitting on the couch. We were just sort of frantic. 
and he he called into work and I, I remember him going outside and and calling his boss and I couldn't hear exactly his words, but I remember he was so mad and he was so not at me, but like he was already uh, watching somebody break down because they love you and they couldn't protect you. It's hard. That's hard to see. And it made it really real uh, in that moment, seeing him distraught and in despair, actively in despair over not over it even happening, you know, in those early moments, that was, that was really like, okay, it is as scary as I think it is. The rest of that day, all of the all of those initial even few weeks probably blend together. Like I think I could. It's only because I I know dates of some things that I can keep them straight. But otherwise, I think I would have a really hard time chronologically knowing when I did what. I know, in the first couple of days, maybe the first day, maybe the second day, we went up to the bar. That's right before that overpass. And asked them if they had, we told them what happened and asked them if they had video. And they said, well, we have a camera that points outside, but it really just watches like our patio tables and it might, it might just barely get the sidewalk, but I don't have access to it. So he had the manager take a look at it. The manager called us within a couple of hours and said, yeah, come on, you know, if you want to come down here, we'll put it on a, a thumb, a thumb drive for you. So we did. And went in a tiny little room and he showed us the video and and it showed me walking and him walking behind me a few seconds later and then him running back the way that we came originally back the opposite direction a few minutes after after that when he was done with the attack so we got that video and at the time my sister's husband, he works in law enforcement in a different state. And I think he had reached out to the Portland police for me and asked them if an advocate could get in touch with me. So that would have happened, I think, regardless. I don't want to, I don't want to discredit PPB for <laughs> like they wouldn't have given me an advocate. They would have, but I think he, he sped up that process. So I did get a call from, from the police advocate that very first day uh, and she was great. She was lovely and kind and she offered to come to come and meet with me that day. But I, I was really not, I didn't, I was not in, I didn't want to see any humans. I just wanted to be with Marcus and, and be in my home and, and feel safe. And, but she told me that an investigator probably wouldn't reach out for a few days and they didn't, they reached out. Um, I think early the next week, this happened on a, on a Friday. And I think that they reached out to me maybe Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. My original investigator was really great. He was he was a really kind man. He had been doing that for a long time and and was getting ready to retire, but he was very kind to me and very concerned that this had happened and and optimistic, which was good because I was not. He was optimistic that we would do a sketch and and we would he would track down some video and he would talk to the people, the patrol officers on the street and and that they would they would find this guy. And so I suppose that did make me feel a little bit better, but I was I was very skeptical that they would actually find him. There was no DNA. Um, we did have that video from the bar, but it wasn't very good, certainly for identification, right? It's definitely good for timestamp. It's good for identifying his clothing. Maybe corroboration is what it's good for, right? Like, general description you can see kind of has a ponytail um you can see that he's white that he's thin uh, but you can't you can't make out his face or mine so i really just thought i don't know how his face is locked in my brain right like it's hard to get it's hard to get that down on paper i don't have a picture of him so i went in and did the sketch and and the sketch artist was lovely i think the sketch sketches are are what they are right they're not supposed to be an exact likeness and it definitely wasn't but it was a general general description of him and then that was it i i took a leave of absence from work i tried to go back initially that i'm laughing because it's so absurd i don't looking back it's like i we didn't know what we were doing i mean we were just beside ourselves both of us Marcus and I and and we both we both have talked about me going back to work thinking I don't know what we were thinking but I think we were thinking maybe try to get back to normal right is it sort of kind of a I don't want to say the word denial but thinking if I go back to work maybe that means things are kind of getting back to normal yeah and it had always yes um I think I don't think denial is a bad word I think right it carries a weird connotation sometimes but you have a tendency to want to minimize it or maybe it's just my own weird insecurities or feeling like, Oh, I'm making, I'm being a drama queen. This is, this is not the big of a deal or I don't know. Yeah. You want, you're desperate for to just not feel the way that you feel and questioning if you're doing that to yourself or if this is just how people feel after something like this, or am I just not working hard enough to feel better? Yeah. You just desperately want to feel normal. And I had just started that job, you know, and they gave me kind of a hard time, kind of a hard time about it. And that was unfortunate and disappointing. Uh, ultimately, they ended up working with me because they didn't, I think they didn't have a choice because <laughs> of the way the laws are here. So they were, they ended up putting me on a leave of absence. But I, I tried to go back Monday. I tried to go back Tuesday. It didn't work either day. And then it was after that we were like, all right just stay home. <laughs> it's it's time to just stay home. And, and, and I think both of us were still at that point in shock. I was desperately scared. I mean, I was, I was so scared and I had, I guess I didn't talk about this a lot before, but I had come, I had, this life was so different for me and I, I was so happy living here in Oregon and sharing this life with Marcus. He's my best friend and I've never met a human 
like him uh, in my whole life. He's just, he's the most beautiful person I've ever, I've ever met. Uh, and I was, I was really happy and I wasn't really scared of anything. I, I had overcome a lot of fear. You know, I kind of high anxiety or, or wasn't letting myself experience a lot of life in Arizona. And when I moved here, that changed for me. I had become really adventurous and a lot more comfortable with strangers, right? And people come up to me all the time on the street and it was fine with me. I was, I felt like untouchable prior to this. And it was an immediate shutdown of all of that. Like it just, you can almost just hear prison bars closing around you. Like you're immediately trapped in your brain about how fucking scary the world is. And every decision, every time you leave the house, is is it worth it? Because if I think nothing's going to happen and I'm wrong again and I'm not lucky this time, then I'll die. The consequence is that somebody's going to try to kill me. That fear is immediate. It is almost palpable. Like you can, you can almost hold on to it. And it feels like it changes the chemistry of your body. Like you just immediately change. And so anyway, I'm scared. I'm sitting at home staring at the door thinking about how unsafe our deadbolt is and how flimsy it is. And somebody could really, really come in here if they want to and trying to get in. I got into trauma counseling pretty quickly and that was, that was helpful after a couple of weeks after that initial shock wears off, which a couple of weeks is maybe generous, but you really do feel like I got to get back to living even though I wasn't, I still wasn't really going anywhere alone. I wasn't really going places. I did have a beautiful friend at the time who was who was willing to go on adventures and kind of indulge my anxiety and panic about people and, and stay right with me and leave if I wanted to leave. So I got to, to, to leave the house and live a little bit, I guess, monitored, <laughs> uh, chaperoned, we'll say. And then three weeks... Three weeks after this happened, my investigator called and said, we made an arrest. And I was shocked. I like they I didn't even know that they were really looking, honestly. Like I hadn't heard much. And well, that's not true. I had talked to him and he had told me, yeah, I'm talking to patrol officers and we're gonna release the sketch to the media maybe at some point. And but otherwise I hadn't heard anything. And so he calls just out of the blue on the 27th, I believe, of July. This happened on the 5th. My attack happened on the 5th. So 27th, he calls. They arrested somebody. And he told me that the day prior to to that on the 26th, that the guy they arrested had attacked two women that were sleeping in an alcove, which happened to be about a block away from where I was working at the time. It's crazy. So they were sleeping in that alcove and and one of them woke up with him on top of her with a knife to her throat and he, and he raped her and her friend woke up and saw what was happening and pulled out her knife and they fought and he slammed her head on the, on the concrete and her finger got cut up from grabbing his, his knife away from him and she got his knife away from him, grabbed it by the blade and got it away and he took off running. They're so brave. So he had attacked these women. And at the time, I didn't know how. And I'm still, 
I've still never been told how they got his name, although I've deduced things or made assumptions, I guess, educated guesses from what, from other things they've said. But at the time I didn't know who he was or how they got his name. I'd never been shown any pictures or anything. So, so he's just this guy. They arrested him. That's great. We went to the grand jury, um, maybe three weeks after that. It was maybe the 12th of August or something, something like that. And when I say we, it was me and those, those two other victims. And I got to meet them and have a couple of moments to, to love on each other. And that was really special. And I'm glad that no matter what else happened, I got to have that experience. And I think that was valuable for all of us. It was helpful for me to see them and know that they were okay. I think it was helpful for them to see me and know that I was okay. Kind of share a hug with people who who get it, who've all just been through a really rotten trauma that's pretty similar. Even though our circumstances were very, very much not the same, we had really had bonded. I, I, bonding sounds trite, maybe, or cliche, but but it is bonding. And that was lovely. So we go to grand jury, they indict him, they hold him. At some point, I, I really don't know the timeline, but I want to say within two weeks, two weeks of of the indictment or right before the indictment, they had received a phone call from somebody who saw this guy's picture in the, in the news and said that that was the same person that had attacked them on the 25th of July, which would mean my attack on the 5th, an attack on the 25th, the attack on the two women on the 26th, and then they arrest this guy on the 27th. So he would have been pretty busy those last couple of days. I don't know anything about that victim. I just know that he he approached her from behind and held a knife to her throat and raped her. They were able to get DNA from that attack, although it wasn't enough for a profile. They were able to get DNA from the knife and from one of the victims uh, in the last attack, which matched each other and were for a male. So they have his DNA and that's that's great. So it takes, you know, I, it takes crime labs a long time to test DNA. There's still lots of rape cases that, and lots of other cases, not just, not just sex crimes, but murder cases and assaults and other violent crimes that haven't been tested. So we were sort of expecting to just wait, right? Like he's, he's in jail, he's on bond. They've got evidence, but I don't know what all the evidence is. So we just are waiting. And then a couple of months goes by. So this is August. He's been in jail since July, September, maybe end of October, beginning of November. I get a phone call from the the deputy district attorney that is prosecuting the case, uh, and he and he tells me that we have a big problem. He told me they came upon some video. The guy's defense attorney was able to get video from from his apartment. The person that they arrested, they got video from his apartment that seemed to eliminate the possibility that he could have committed the last two attacks. It basically showed him entering before the attack on the 25th and not leaving until after the attack on the 26th. So they, unfortunately, it had been too long and they had just deleted the video from the night of my attack. So there really is no way to know what that guy that they arrested was doing on the night of my attack. But they assume all three are related because of lots of, Lots of things, some things I probably don't even know about, but mostly description and proximity and similarity of crime. So 
they tell me they rush the DNA after they get this video. The DA's office says they rush the DNA at the crime lab. Crime lab says it doesn't match him. So they let him go. And they, I mean, they should have, if he had been in jail for months and it wasn't him. And we know for sure it wasn't him for the, for the last two. For mine, I suppose there's always a little bit of doubt. There's some, there's some things that make me be like, gosh, that's really weird. But I don't think it's him. I don't think it's the guy they arrested. Could be, I suppose, but we'll never know because we don't have DNA and he's not, he's not the guy for the other, the other two. So if we assume they're all connected, then he's not the guy for mine. Sort of hard to say for sure. It's got to be pretty disappointing. You think they've got this guy and then all of a sudden you're back <laughs> to square one. Yeah. I, I didn't really, I didn't feel a ton better when they, when they arrested him at that point it was, it all happened so fast and I was still so scared, right? Like you're really, you're not just scared of him. You're scared of everyone. And I was so stressed. I was just raw from the anxiety and, and the despair of, of having experienced that kind of a trauma that the idea of a trial, like I'm, I kept thinking forward to a defense attorney cross-examining me, right? And trying to sh- shame me or, or asking me, are you sure you didn't, I don't know, like lying or making something up or asking me invasive questions. And that all seemed, it, it all seemed really intimidating having to do all of that. So, but knowing that he's real, right? Like being able to see him and knowing that that, at least that guy can't hurt anybody else having that part taken away is really disappointing and not knowing how that happened. Right. Like I don't really, I don't understand. I don't understand how did, how were you so confident that this was the guy and, and then it's definitely not the guy. And I don't know what evidence they have because it's an open case and they won't share it with me. So I just will probably never know the statute of limitations will run out on my case and then maybe they can, They've said that. I mean, they, that's their words. Like, you know, if, if we don't solve it and, and the statute of limitations runs out, then at that point we can talk about releasing evidence and documents to you. But, but until that point, they're not going to give me anything. So I don't know. How long is the statute of limitations on something like this? My old investigator retired. Uh, my new investigator told me that he believed it was 12 years. And actually, I'm saying that, and I may have just looked that up. So. Don't quote me on that. 12 years is the number I have. I, I honestly don't remember where I got that information. It's not forever uh, because what he was charged with, the crime that, that they charged the initial guy with was not, it wasn't like a, an attempted murder charge, right? Because he didn't hurt me. It was a sex, it was a sex crime, a sex, sex abuse. I think it, sex assault basically is, is what it is. I think it's called sex abuse. And it's a serious, it's a felony. I mean, it's a serious felony and it carries a hefty bond and it carries a hefty prison term. Um, and they also charged him with assaults with a weapon. So those aren't, those aren't lifetime statutes of limitations, right? Like eight, 10, 12 years at best. And it might even be shorter than that. Have you kind of resolved in your mind that it's just not going to be solved? And you just got to get on with things? Or where, where are you at? That's a moving target. This whole thing is such, a, it's such a process and there's so much going on that you have to deal with. And 
the weight of it all gets really heavy sometimes. And there are times where I just cannot take another second of thinking about that guy or why he isn't in jail or how unfair it is. I just can't take it anymore. And so I'll, I'll just be like, I don't care. Right. Uh, and I'll, I'll go through my process of rationalizing why it makes sense that they can't find him and why I can still have a good life, even if they don't find him. Right. Um, how I can still feel like I can get my needs met in the arena of healing without that being a part of it. My healing doesn't have to be dependent on them finding him. And then other times I don't feel like that. And I, I think he's out there hurting people. I mean, he's a serial sex offender. So what if he kills somebody? The weight of that is also heavy. And it renews my interest in wanting to get his face out there and getting in front of people and talking about it and saying, find this guy, you know, because it could be, I know people say this all the time, but it could be you. It could be you. You think it's not going to happen because you don't live a high risk lifestyle. You don't, you're not a criminal or, or you don't buy or sell drugs or, or you're not a sex worker or you're not a marginalized person. You're not living in the street or hanging out with people that put you in danger. There's lots of reasons why people think it's not going to be them. And I don't do any of those things either. I'm just a regular person with a job and a, and a person that I love very much and, and a life that I loved very much. And it could so, it just happens so fast. And it happens even when you're certain that it couldn't possibly or wouldn't possibly happen to you. I don't want that to happen to somebody that I love. I don't want it to happen to anybody. Justice is sort of whatever. I mean, is there justice for this? Like, is putting this guy in jail justice? I don't know. My feelings on that are also kind of evolving. I don't know. But I do know that he's dangerous. And I also want to see him. He's just a ghost right now. He's just he's just some guy that I'm telling a story about and I don't know how to explain it. It just, it, it just feels like it's dissipating, right? Like it started out as this big ball of energy, like this big trauma and Oh God, there's this guy and he's this horrible, bad man. We're going to find him and we're going to put him in jail. And now it's just sort of like, gosh, so sorry that happened. There's lots of unsolved crimes out there. Yours is going on the shelf with all the rest of them and sort of a, yeah, yeah. You got attacked. Nobody says that. That's not, it's not that anybody's saying that. There's just a a fear, right? That I, I want to see him without a knife. I want to, I want to have him in front of me and be able to look at him and say, okay, he's just a man. He's just a guy. He's a wounded guy. He's a broken guy. He's an unhealthy guy. He's a, he's a violent guy. I don't know what he is. I don't know what's wrong with that guy, uh, but he's just a guy. There's some validation and some comfort I think that would come from seeing him knowing he exists and him not being able to hurt me for other victims how would you what suggestions would you make about how they can kind of put their life together after something like this happens yeah I think that's going to vary so much from person to person um, and I and I think that I am it's funny I think six months ago, Eight months ago, every every marker, I've thought, gosh, I'm so much further past it, right? Like any day now, I'll just go back to normal. <laughs> My life will be back together. I'm doing all this work and I'm going, I'm going to therapy and I'm 
I'm trying to be kind to myself. I'm trying to be honest with myself. I'm trying to to heal from from other things, you know, just all the baggage that we all carry around from whatever childhoods or life or, or whatever. I'm really trying to do to put some work in. And so I think it's going to be different for everybody. I know I benefited quite a bit from doing the things that I really love to do in a more controlled way in the beginning. So for example, I really liked to go on little drives and road trips and go hiking and go camping, go out to the coast, but that looked different. Uh, I got really scared to go to any place really that wasn't home. (laughs) And I was lucky. I really, I cannot stress enough. I was so lucky to have a small group, a very small group of a few friends, a couple of friends who knew how to how to get me in those who who would who would sacrifice for me right who would do those kinds of adventures in a more a less jovial way right like it was all sort of an experiment can i can i handle going out among people i guess we're going to drive 2 hours and find out and they were willing to do it with me so doing the things that you want to do in a way that makes you feel safe i think talking to somebody it's not that talking to somebody fixes it immediately, right? Like if you've been, maybe, maybe you got sexually assaulted in college or, or maybe somebody hurt you in your twenties and, and your years past it, decades past it, and you've never told anybody. It's not that telling somebody is going to fix it, but it does, it just releases. It makes you feel like you're not carrying it by yourself. It demystifies it a little bit. I can understand that. Yeah, I think ultimately I wanted to get back to living. My Everybody's goal is different. So some people might say, I just want to feel safe walking in my neighborhood. And that's as far as that's that's the thing that they want to accomplish uh, after something like that happens. So their journey might look different from mine. I had a desire to go out and live uh, in whatever way I wanted. There was a a really a sense of wanting and I still do. I'm still not there yet. I shouldn't talk in the past tense. I still have a desire to do whatever I want to do to get in the car or to go for a walk or to go camping, to do whatever I feel like doing alone without, without worrying about my safety. It's really frustrating to have to, it's just like a, it's like a giant giant bag that I have to take with me everywhere. It's so heavy and it's so frustrating. I wanted to get out there and live. So big steps for me were going skydiving. I'd always wanted to go skydiving and I'd never done it. And I was like, well, might as well, right? I mean, I'm not going to be any more scared than I've already been. <laughs> and that's that's actually not true. I was terrified. It is it's terrifying. It's not the same. Well, it's supposed to be, right? <laughs> yes, but it was liberating too, right? And I chose it. It was a fear that I chose and that was really empowering. Doing something scary that's actually scary and accomplishing it. That was that was a that was a huge step. And then back in gosh, September, October of this year, I went camping alone for two nights, which was huge for me. I had never done that before in my life, gone alone certainly not since this attack. And that was very empowering. Wow. That is pretty impressive. It really was. I mean, I'm, I know lots of people go camping alone, but given the, a lot of people don't, I know. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. Given the circumstances, it felt like 
good. Okay. I want to be honest, like, and I, and I hesitate to share too much of, I have a tendency to want to say like, you know, we're all going to get through it and you can get through it. And um, you just got to take care of yourself and you'll be okay. That's not always true. You know, I'm a year and a half in and I am currently actively right now depressed over it. Like PTSD is real. It gets you, it, it ebbs and it flows. So I think maybe the most important thing is to really be patient with yourself, to accept that the way you feel today is probably not how you're going to feel tomorrow or in a month. Allow it to be a fluid process. Don't decide immediately how how you feel and how you're always going to feel. Let yourself go through the journey and take really good care of yourself. Do whatever that looks like. If that means cutting somebody out of your life that isn't good for you, do it. If that means eating more cookies because they sound delicious, then eat more cookies. It's self-care. If it if all you can do is get out of bed and order pizza and watch Netflix for two weeks, then I guess that's what you got to do to take care of yourself. Be patient, be kind, and talk to somebody. Reach out. You don't have to talk to a therapist if you don't want to go to therapy. You don't have to report it to the cops if you don't want to go to the cops. There's lots of local resources. There's lots of national resources. And there's, I have an email address for victims of violent crime. So you could reach out to that and, and tell me, and you, if you don't want me to email you back, you just say, I don't want you to email me back. You just tell me your story because you just want to talk. That's fine. And what is that email address? Just so people know. Um, it's violent crime survivors at gmail.com. And we'll have that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Have you spoken with the operator from the Noonlight app that you were on the phone with that night? I did. They were very, the company is so gracious. They connected me with her pretty early on, maybe a couple months after after this happened. And, and we got to spend, I don't know, a while, I don't know how long we were on the phone, a while, and kind of shared, swapped our stories, just relived the whole thing. I think that was therapeutic for her to be able to, to talk about her fear <laughs> and and how it impacted her. And, and it was really helpful for me. I felt like she saved my life. I felt like she was a hero. And I think I told her, I hope, hope you go home and tell your family that they need to buy you a cake and give you whatever you want tonight. You're a, you're a hero. And she's so, they were so lovely. She's so kind. And, um, and she was just as kind and lovely to me when we reconnected as she was the night that she helped me, but certainly, calmer, right? <laughs> there we could actually have a conversation. Yeah, it was great. I can imagine from her standpoint, you know, it's like 911 operators. They they're on the call and then they hang up when the when the police arrive. So they may not always know how a situation ends up or how it turns out. And she's probably in a similar thing where I know a lot of them a lot of the calls they get are probably false alarms or something like that. But being able to talk to you after such a traumatic experience and hear your voice and know that you're that you survived and that she had a, a hand in that, that had to be pretty gratifying for her. I hope so. It certainly was for me. Granted I have a different perspective, but but yeah, I, I really hope it was. I hope someday she could hear this and think to herself, I really did impact somebody's life. Like genuinely I'll never forget her. She, I'll never forget her voice. She's a permanent part of my story. She's just got such a little spot in my heart. She's one of the heroes of this story. There's not a lot of them. I can't say enough nice things. She'll be with me forever. 
If you're interested in the Noonlight app, it's available free for both iPhone and Android. You can get more information at Noonlight.com. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this discussion of fear was a big topic recently in the Facebook group. This is the kind of thing we talk about, and we'd love to have you join us there. Right now, we have over 900 podcast listeners in there, and we'll have 1,000 pretty soon. You can join us there at whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. So I asked the question, what's the most scared you've ever been? And this is what people had to say. Hi, my name is Anne. The most scared I have ever been was when I was taking a shower and heard a noise, threw on a towel to go investigate, and found a strange man in my apartment with a crowbar in his hand. I screamed and he took off. I was very luckily unharmed. However, it terrified me and it took quite a long time until I felt comfortable being home alone. I will never forget that feeling and hope to never experience it again. Thank you. My name is Erin. The day that I was most afraid was the day my sister was murdered. Her ex-boyfriend was still on the loose, and I was afraid that he would find the rest of us and do the same. Luckily, the police caught him three days later at his mom's house. Hi, everyone, or what was that like podcast? My name is Jennifer, and if you're a fan of the show, you might have heard my story on episode one where I shared one of the scariest times in my life still to this day, um, that night and many moments after that pertaining to that situation. But I wanted to share something that was a little bit more lighthearted. Um, when my husband and I were first married, we had actually just come back from the honeymoon. And we were awakened in the middle of the night by this very loud sound. And it really, we thought the window was breaking. So we jumped out of bed and ran in the closet and called 911. And I remember the operator talking to my husband saying all the things like try to, you know, calm your wife down, tell her to be quiet. The police are on their way. They're going to help you. They asked about our pets and I started crying thinking they may have hurt our pets. Well, Finally, the operator says, the police are there. It's safe to come out. So here we are in our early 20s, very newly married, and I am walking behind my husband who is embracing a tennis racket, which was the only weapon he had to defend me, and we are walking to the um, the door, and in come the police, and I burst into tears with relief, and they said, your home is secure, and then all of nowhere, we hear this boom sound again. Everybody kind of jumped, including the police officers, and we realized it was a welcome home balloon. And congratulations on our wedding that was causing this because it had become wrapped up in the fan, and it sounded exactly like broken glass. So, of course, dogs are barking. I'm crying. Police officers are shocked and laughing with us. And that is the story of something that was very scary that thankfully turned out to be nothing. But it's a great story. Hi, I'm Jennifer Smith, and I'm calling about a time where I had to make a difficult decision. I was pregnant with my third child, and I was having some health issues. I went to the hospital and I was having a little trouble breathing. My oxygen was down, and I 
was fainting. Well, they were rushing me to CT. They were worried I had a pulmonary embolism. Um, and they had asked me, um, you have to decide right now if we can only save one of you, you or your child, who do you want to save? And with two other children, I wanted to save myself because as much as I wanted that third child and we'd be devastated to lose her, I couldn't leave my other two children without a mother. So I said, save me. Well, fortunately, I did not have a pulmonary embolism. They could not tell me or find out why I was having trouble breathing and why I was fainting. But they kept me in the hospital, kept me on oxygen, and I improved it, and everything was fine. I went to full term with my child, gave birth to her, and she is almost nine years old now. It was very difficult to choose that, and I would thought being asked that question, I would always choose my child, but I just could not choose to leave my children without a mother. But thankfully, it all worked out okay. My name is Kathy. The most scared I've ever been was when, at age 11, my father started waving his pistol around, telling my sister and I that he wanted us to watch him shoot himself. I grabbed my sister's hand and we went into the bathroom where we crouched down in the bathtub, my thinking being that if the gun went off, the bullet would ricochet off the tub. Hey, Scott, this is Lily calling Lily from Islip, New York, and um, I'm, I'm responding to your question on Facebook on the scariest moment uh, I ever had, and what comes to mind is the day that the World Trade Center bombing occurred. Uh, I worked three blocks from the World Trade Center and when the second plane hit the World Trade Center and at that moment when I knew it was a terrorist attack had to be the scariest moment for me. The most scared I remember being is in the recent past from 2018. I was out on State Road 60 in Brandon and I had missed a turn heading east on 60. I turned onto a side street to head back east and the traffic was really piled up. It's a six-lane traffic highway or state road. And I remember thinking to myself, just turn right and make a U-turn. I didn't listen. A woman in a Toyota Corolla was heading east and was crossing traffic to get onto the side street which I was on, which was to the north. Two lanes of traffic were stopped for her to go. The third lane of traffic was not stopped. A Dodge Magnum plowed into her, pushed her Toyota Corolla into my VW and pushed me all the way over the street, off the street. I remember seeing it happening, I remember thinking something bad would happen, and it did. I remember hearing the tires squealing and being trapped in my car. That's the most scared that I remember being in the recent past. My name's Linda. 
I was 16 years old working my first job as a receptionist for a very sketchy floor cleaning and limo service. This was in about 1982 in Southern California. One day um, at work, just out of the blue, our office was raided by the SWAT team that barged in with their guns drawn. It was so scary. I knew the owner was dealing very large quantities of cocaine, but I was so terrified to say anything. I wasn't arrested, just questioned, and they released me. And so I went home and never said a word to anybody about it. I was in university, renting a basement apartment, and was about to leave for class, when I heard the dog upstairs go berserk in a loud metal clanging. I knew the woman who lived upstairs, alone, was at work, but it sounded like someone was throwing the pans and dishes out of the cupboards. At first, I didn't think much of it, but the weird thing was I didn't hear any voices, and it kept going on for over 10 minutes. I got really scared because I thought there was a robbery going on upstairs and the dog was trying to alert me. I grabbed a kitchen knife and my cat and locked myself in my room and called the police. They showed up within minutes and searched the upstairs, but didn't find anything. They did see the dog's bowl was overturned, so we figured the dog was just spooked by something outside the window and was banging his dishes around. I hope that's all it was. I felt pretty dumb for calling the police, but turns out the policeman lived across the street. So basically, I just gave him an excuse to take a long lunch. In 2002, I was pregnant with my second child. I planned to make Emily. At 36 weeks, my water broke and I began hemorrhaging large blood clots. Luckily, we lived just five minutes from the hospital. We raced to the hospital as quickly as we could. After we arrived, I could see the fear in the eyes of the hospital staff as they began assessing me. They brought the ultrasound machine in so they could hear the baby and hear her heartbeat. The nurse put the wand on my belly and there was total silence in the room. I was terrified. Finally, after a terrifying 30 seconds or so, we heard the heartbeat. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. My doctor arrived and I was rushed to the OR. I can still remember how fast the gurney was moving, and my doctor was running alongside it. It looked like a scene from a movie, but this was no movie. This was real life, and this was me and my baby. I had no idea if my baby would survive. I was bleeding so heavily I didn't know if I would even survive. I was placed under anesthesia, and the next thing I remember was waking up in a hospital room. I opened my eyes, and with a croaky voice, I whispered, Emily? My husband said, she's okay, she made it. We later found out I had had a placental abruption. Most babies do not survive this. 18 years later, I still call her my miracle baby. Hi, my name's Nicole. The most scared I've ever been was back in May when my husband and I both had COVID-19. Uh, my case was moderate. It was pretty terrible, but I didn't need to be hospitalized. Uh, my husband, age 45, no pre-existing conditions, needed to be hospitalized. About a day into his stay there, he called me because he had come to terms uh, with death and thought he would die and called me to say goodbye. Thankfully, he made it. The doctors gave him nitric oxide instead of intubating him 
and putting him on a ventilator, and that worked for him. And he's still here, for which I'm very grateful, but that was very scary and still dealing with the psychological fallout months later. But I love him, and I'm glad he's here. A couple months ago, I was home with my six-year-old and my three-year-old, and my husband was at work. It was about 10.30 at night. The kids were in bed, and I was also in my bedroom upstairs. And I heard our sliding glass door open downstairs. And I assumed it was my husband coming home from work, and I listened for the sounds of him coming in and coming upstairs, but I didn't hear that. So I started to get a little nervous, and I called him and said, where are you? And he said, I'm on, and named the road that he takes to get home. And I said, I just heard somebody open the door downstairs. And he said, do you need to call the police? And I said, yes. And I hung up on him, and I called 911. And I told the dispatcher, I'm home alone with my kids, and I think somebody just came in my house. And I was in a full panic at this point. Like I told the dispatcher, this was my worst nightmare, somebody coming in my house when I'm alone with my kids. My hands started to go numb, and I was just absolutely freaking out. So it probably took the police about 10 minutes to get here. During that time, I swore I heard footsteps downstairs. And the dispatcher was saying, you know, everybody's on the way. Just lock yourself in a room. I didn't know what to do about my kids because I didn't feel like I could safely and quietly get them out of their rooms and into the bathroom with me. So I just left them in their rooms and and hoped to not draw attention to them, Uh, which I don't know if that was the right decision or not. But eventually the police got there and I saw them outside with their flashlights. They looked all around the outside of my house. They looked inside the windows. And eventually the dispatcher told me it was safe to go downstairs and let them in. So I did. They looked all around the inside of my house. They looked in the basement and they didn't find anyone. Eventually they left. My husband came home and I calmed down enough to go to sleep. The next morning, inside my sliding glass door, I saw a package from Amazon. And I feel kind of stupid causing all that drama for an Amazon delivery. But who expects Amazon to deliver a package inside your house? at 10.30 at night. So that's my only defense. Hi, my name is Rhonda, and I guess the scariest time that I can remember in my life was when I had to have some vertebrae freeze in my neck uh, because of some discs that collapsed in my cervical spine. When I first woke from my sur- the surgery, my surgeon happened to be there, and the first thing I can remember him saying is how sorry he was. So for that first minute, all I could think of was that I was paralyzed. And I guess he saw the fear in my eye because he then explained how he was apologizing for the extreme breathing that was done to my shoulders during the surgery. The actual surgery went well. My son was about 15 months old at the time, and he was my only child then. We had just gone out to lunch with my best friend, and when we got home, I put him down for a nap. I heard him waking up, and I went in to change his diaper. All of a sudden, his eyes rolled back in his head, and he started seizing. His eyes glazed over, and his whole body was just jerking over and over again. I put him on my bed, and I called 911, and as I was giving them my address and telling them what was happening, his lips started turning blue. He was breathing, but it wasn't, he wasn't breathing right. It was noisy, and just you could tell it was, his breathing was not right. And I remember saying over and over again, I don't know why this is happening. I also remember my hands started going numb from that, the fight or flight response. Uh, The paramedics got there really quickly, and I think it was under five minutes. 
I don't remember exactly the moment he stopped seizing, but by the time the paramedics came in the house, the jerking had stopped um, and he started breathing a little more normally. They took his temperature and I was surprised when they told me that he had a fever because he'd been completely fine before I put him down for a nap. They had me get his car seat to put him in the ambulance and during that time he was slowly coming to. In the ambulance he started crying and that was a huge relief and by the time we got to the hospital he was acting mostly normal. They evaluated him at the hospital to see if there was any treatable reason for the fever, and there wasn't. They said it was just a virus, and that was pretty much it. They said he has a virus, and they sent us home. What I know now that I didn't know then is that febrile seizures are very common in young children. Common misconception is that they're caused by a high fever when really it's a quick spike to the fever. Uh, the whole time during that episode, his temperature never got above 102. My son is a rare case in that he was eventually diagnosed with epilepsy. I've witnessed more seizures since that day, and even though I know what's happening and why, they're still always very, very scary. Thankfully, now he's doing really, really well. Hi, this is Shelley from Derby in the UK. When my son was around eight months old, we'd put him to bed for the night. I was sat on the couch with my husband when we heard him cry through the baby monitor. We had a couple of seconds of the usual, oh, it's your turn to go to him, until I heard a change in his cry which terrified me. I ran upstairs to his room as fast as I could to find him purple and hanging from his neck in his crib from the cord that went up the back of the Roman blind. I let out the most ungodly sound which frightened his dad so much that he froze, unable to come and check on us. I picked up my baby, took the cord from around his neck and saw the colour instantly return to his face and with a cuddle he stopped crying pretty quickly too. That night we tore the blind down and with me checking on him very often, he just thought it was playtime with a big smile on his face whilst his dad and I had experienced the most terrifying time of our lives. Hi, Scott. It's Sue. The most scared I ever have been was during my skydiving accident as I was descending to the ground and my parachute not opening appropriately. I wasn't sure whether I was going to live or die. And I saw the vignettes of my daughter's life um, flash before my eyes. Well, I lived, but that was the most scared I was. I used to work in a remote encoding center for the post office. It was basically a, you know, gutted out um, grocery store. They had all these desks in there. Probably could fit about four to 500 people at all the desks. And so one night we're working. I worked the night shift, you know, like 5.30 to 11 or 12. And we're working away. And all of a sudden I hear one of the supervisors yell, gun. And I, I could see her, actually. I could see the supervisor, and she went running in through another door. And so other supervisors started coming around the floor and telling us, you know, we needed to get under our desks. And so we did. And I remember the girl next to me, she was smaller, and she she climbed under her desk and, and was pulling her chair in with her. And, you know, I'm thinking, I'm out here kind of exposed because I don't know if I could fit. Plus, I had tucked my chair in before I got down and, and everything. And she actually did fire her gun. Um, she never made it inside the building, though, and it was all glass doors. She didn't shoot at the door. She shot, like, into this, the ceiling of a patio covering that was outside. And then the police were called, and I think somebody told her that 
they had called the police. And so she she took off. There's a mobile home park kind of behind where we were. And it was thought that she had run back in there. It took the police a while to find her, but they did finally find her and arrested her. Turns out she was somebody who had worked there before. Um, she quit and tried to come back, and they wouldn't hire her back. And so she was really upset. The most scared that I've been was when a stranger at work attacked me when I was 17 weeks pregnant. Out of the blue while I was walking on my way to the office. I didn't look pregnant. I had to be rushed to the hospital. They thought I miscarried because they couldn't find our baby's heartbeat. After a few tests and a few hours later, they found her heartbeat. The attack was scary. The possibility of losing our miracle baby was terrifying. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. And I love hearing from you. If you'd like to call in and leave a voicemail for the podcast, you can do that by calling 727-386-9468 anytime, day or night. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.